2,000 years ago, 120 disciples huddled together in a room, and they were waiting. They were waiting. We considered this scene last week. And what's astounding to me is that here we sit two millennia later, 10,000 miles of distance from that room, and we're worshiping the same Lord. We're gathering in the same spirit, studying God's word together. It's amazing to me. Not just us. Estimates are that there are 2 billion Christians in the world today. What began with 120 people huddled together in a room has now reached 2 billion people at this moment. And you have to ask, how does that happen? What empowers that type of incredible growth? Now, that's kind of an abstract idea, so let me make it a little more personal. Let me show you a picture here. You know who that is? That's you. That's us. That's the beginning of Lincoln Berean Church. In 1961, 12 or so people huddled together in a room. And now here we sit, decades later, filling this large auditorium. And you have to ask, how does something like that transpire? How does that happen? What empowers that type of growth? See, the simple truth that we have to come to grips with is that there are things that occur in life, in the world that cannot be explained by human power, human cunning, ingenuity, a good marketing plan. No, there are things that happen that, that are deeper, that are more profound. A deeper power is at work. It's the only way it can be explained. As we walk through the book of Acts, we will be continually dared to be the church, to be the church, to be on Mission, But the truth that we need to come to grips with is that if any one of us thinks we can do that on our own, well, we're sorely mistaken. We need help. We need help. That's precisely what we want to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to be starting in verse 1 and going through verse 13 this morning. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. We'll stop there. As we're walking through Acts, we have to remember that what we talked about last week has great continuity with what we're talking about this week. This is a chronological book. Every week will follow upon the last. And so we consider these disciples that are in that room and they are waiting About seven days have passed now from what we talked about last week, what we considered last week. They're still waiting, and they are waiting in obedience. Because you'll remember that in Acts 1, if you can remember that two weeks ago, Jesus said to them, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then a little bit later, right before he ascended, He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so they're waiting. They're waiting. 
And Luke tells us that it's the day of Pentecost. Now, this is significant for two reasons. The day of Pentecost is simply the Greek word that refers to uh, the Jewish festival called the Feast of Weeks. Now, the Feast of Weeks was one of three main festivals that would occur in the Jewish calendar, a large festival that would be widely celebrated. The Feast of Weeks was a harvest festival, celebrated kind of the end of the harvest, and Pentecost literally means 50, and what that signifies, it's really just signifying a date on the calendar. It's signifying that this feast takes place 50 days after the first cut of the harvest. So this is the Feast of Weeks that's happening. And Jews, devout Jews from all over the Mediterranean would come, would gather together in Jerusalem, and they would celebrate, they would commemorate God's faithful abundance to them with a faithful or a big abundant harvest. They'd come and they'd bring two loaves of bread as an offering to the Lord. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that what is about to transpire and what we're about to read about throughout Acts starts, finds its beginning at a festival that's celebrating a harvest. You'll recall, of course, in Matthew 9, as Jesus was talking to his his disciples, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It's as if Jesus is foreshadowing God is foreshadowing with the day this begins. He's foreshadowing a great harvest that is about to come. Now, the second reason this day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, is significant is because the fact that it is this big festival means loads and loads of devout Jews would have made their way in a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple. People from all over the Mediterranean world would come to offer sacrifice. This would be one of the times that you would leave your home and you would travel a great distance. And what that means is that Jerusalem is filled to the brim with people from all over the known world. And so on this day, Pentecost, we find the disciples waiting. It's been another week. I was looking for synonyms for the word waiting because I was thinking, I'm going to say waiting so many times. What else can I say? But I just couldn't find any good ones. Because the disciples, they're not biding time, are they? They're not biding time. They're not stalling. They're not twiddling their thumbs. No, we looked at them last week, and they are faithfully waiting. They are actively waiting, digging into God's Word, communing together, praying together. This is an obedient waiting. And I don't think we can downplay the significance of their waiting in this moment. Consider their, their, their lives for a moment and the moment they find themselves in. These are people, many of them, who walked with Jesus throughout his ministry. And that was an incredible three years, moving all over Israel, all over Galilee, all over Judea, healing, proclaiming the kingdom of God. It was a frenetic pace. Estimates are that they covered 3,000 miles on foot. And now their Lord has been crucified He has risen from the dead. He's been with them 40 days. He's ascended into heaven, and he says, you have a mission. And I would think if you're a disciple, you are thinking, let's go. Let's get after it. And he says to them, but wait. You have to wait. And throughout Scripture, as we consider God's people, 
we just have a tendency to be impatient. Consider Israel in the wilderness, and as Moses goes up on Sinai, they get impatient and they build themselves a calf to worship. Even think about the, the disciples throughout Jesus' ministry, constantly saying to him, is it now? Is now the time? Is now when the kingdom of God comes? Is this, is this when it happens, Jesus? Impatient, wanting to take things into our own hands and not wait for God. But here, here we find these 120 disciples faithfully waiting, obediently waiting, surrendered to God. And what are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. And in verse 2, Luke describes how that happened. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, God is never late, but he often comes unannounced, doesn't he? He comes when we don't expect it, comes out of the blue. Luke says, this moment came suddenly upon them. A few things we can notice about this, this verse is, is that this, uh, this noise came from heaven. Came from heaven. Now that is the same word that occurs in chapter 1 when it talks about where the disciples were staring. Jesus went into the heavens, kind of disappeared into the sky, was enveloped in the cloud of God's glory, and they stared into the heavens. And so what we can say is that wherever this noise came from, it came from where Jesus is. It proceeded from him. And oh, how I wish we could, we could somehow get a glimpse of what this moment was like. What a dramatic, incredible moment. And I don't think there's any way words can do it justice. We have an incredible video team here. I don't know that they could do it justice. I don't know that Steven Spielberg could do it justice. This is an amazing moment. The moment they had been waiting for, the moment Jesus promised, and it came upon them suddenly. Came from the heavens. Came from where Jesus was. And Luke says, it was like a violent, rushing wind. I read one commentator that said, like a strong wind sweeping along through the house. It's interesting that in, in Greek, the language that the New Testament is written in, the word spirit and wind are the same word. Same words, as if there's, there's a way that the spirit kind of acts. It's a little bit like the wind. Same thing's true in Hebrew. Same word, wind and spirit. So the spirit rushes through the house, fills the house, and then we're told another sign occurs in verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. So often in Scripture, imagery of fire shows up when God is manifesting himself miraculously, powerfully, at an incredibly important moment. Immediately, I'm sure a few images came to mind, but I immediately thought about Moses wandering in the wilderness and comes upon that burning bush that's burning but not being consumed, and God was speaking to him there. Think about Israel wandering through the wilderness and being led by a pillar of fire at night. Fire symbolizing God's 
powerful presence. Tongues as of fire. The symbol of tongues is kind of a strange one, but it's almost as if it foreshadows what the empowerment of the Spirit is going to bring about in the disciples upon whom it is falling. It's going to loosen their tongue. In some ways, it's going to set their tongues on fire. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So just as the Spirit swept through the whole house, it then come and individually lands on each one of them. And the indication that the Spirit fell upon them was they began to speak in other tongues. And literally what the the idea is here is these are specific, distinct languages that they begin to speak. Now there's some confusion about the biblical idea of tongues, but one thing we can say clearly is that as we walk through the book of Acts, we're going to encounter this miraculous sign a few times. And in each case, it, it occurs when, when God's spirit and the gospel is, is moving across to a new people, is moving into a new area. When the Gentiles come in, they begin to speak in tongues. It's a sign confirming God's presence and God's blessing on that moment, confirming what is happening. Unfortunately, in in our day and age, we've had divisions, we've had whole denominations that have split over this issue of what exactly this idea of tongues entails. And we would just say that we don't see anything in Scripture that indicates this is something that's necessary in the life of believers. Some people say you have to have this to be saved, and we would just say that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not in Scripture at all. But what we do see here clearly in the book of Acts is that in incredibly powerful, potent moments, God confirms the movement of the gospel through this speaking of distinct languages. I want to look at this moment for just a second, because really when you think about it, it's not all that strange that this is what happens when the Spirit comes. You'll remember that Jesus gave his disciples a mission in Acts 1.8. He says, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now to these disciples from, from Israel, from Galilee, you can imagine if you're them, you're thinking to the ends of the earth, I, how many years are we going to have to study to get the language down so that we can communicate to the ends of the earth? Duolingo did not exist. They didn't have apps. So is it any surprise that at the moment when the filling comes to empower the mission, God supplies the means by which the mission can be accomplished. He gives them the languages of the people of the ends of the earth, confirming the mission, validating the mission that Jesus had just given them. God gives them the mission. He supplies the power. He supplies the means to accomplish the mission. Throughout the Old Testament, as we look at the Holy Spirit and the movement of the Holy Spirit, so often what happens is that the Spirit comes on on a certain person and kind of then moves to a different person and falls on certain people for distinct kind of works that God's called them to at specific times. But how different is this moment? Luke says that it falls upon, it comes upon all of them. 
Not just the 12. Not just the men, not just the women. Not just the, the zealot, as Brian talked about last week, or not just the tax collector. Falls upon every single one of them. As I think about the Spirit in the Old Testament, I sometimes think that, that the Spirit was so economical, right? It fell on this person for a while, and then this person for a while. But here what we have is a generous outpouring of God's Spirit, a flood of God's Spirit falling forth or coming forth on all of God's people. What an incredible change God's Spirit put in each follower falling and filling each person, every believer. So what's this mean for you and me? Well, what it means is that the very same spirit that fell on these disciples at Pentecost fills you and me if we call ourselves and we have confessed that we are followers of Jesus. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been filled. We have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the very same Spirit that filled prophets in the Old Testament and filled these first believers now lives, now resides in you and in me. And just like these first disciples, we have a calling to be witnesses. But we've also been given the Spirit that empowers us to be witnesses. We weren't left alone. We weren't left alone. God's very spirit came and now lives in you if you have placed your faith in Jesus. And that will have a profound effect on those who are around you. Let's look at verse 5 and see the effect it had on those that were in Jerusalem. Verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, the text doesn't make it explicit exactly how it is that the crowd heard what was happening in that upper room. As I used to think about this text, I used to think, I guess the windows were big, or they, they were talking really loudly. But the more I considered it, the more I think that is, that is off base, and I'm going to offer you my interpretation, and you can go study it for yourself. But here's what I think has transpired. I think we've had a change of scenes. Luke doesn't tell us exactly that, they've, that something has changed or they've changed locations, but I think it's pretty evident. I think what's happened here is that these disciples, as we already have said, were waiting and waiting and waiting. They knew they had a mission. They were ready to run the race. It's as if they were in the starter blocks, ready to run the race. They were in the orchestra, and they were ready to play the symphony, and they were told to wait. And they did. They waited. But now, the moment has come. The filling has happened. The Holy Spirit has come in power it is unmistakable, and they are ready to run. The starting gun has gone off, and they are running the race. The conductor started the symphony, and they are ready to play. They cannot wait to be on the mission that Jesus just told them he wanted them to fulfill. 
I think in some ways they probably were elbowing one another to get out of that house, to get to the place where they could communicate to an unknowing world that the Messiah has come, that Jesus is king. They wanted to be about the mission, and they were waiting. And then the starting gun went off. The light turned from red to green, and they were off. If the building wasn't too high, they might have jumped out the windows. And I think they ran over to the temple, the place where God-fearing Jews would be gathered so that they could tell them the Messiah has come. Jesus has come. And so they run out and they find this throng of people that are in Jerusalem for this festival. And they come... And Luke tells us every nation under heaven is represented. Now, that's probably hyperbole. But what he's clearly trying to indicate to us is that this was not kind of some small gathering. And these weren't little dialects of a language that the disciples were speaking. It's not as if a Midwesterner kind of said y'all a couple times. And that's what happened when the Spirit filled them. Not at all. These are distinct languages representing the people that were in Jerusalem that were from all over the Mediterranean world. And they were astounded. And of course they were astounded. It's always amazing to see someone that shouldn't be speaking your language speaking your language. When we were missionaries, uh, I, you know, I'd go to coffee shops all the time. And it was incredible. Whenever I was there, if someone came in or if a Spaniard would start speaking in English, it was unmistakable. It's as if everything in the room went silent and I could hear that one person because they're speaking home. <laughs> they're speaking my, my mother tongue, the language that I grew up with, the thing that's just kind of embedded in me. If it was coming from a Spaniard's mouth, it was even more astounding. It became so astounding to me that I could almost, if I saw someone across the room and I couldn't hear what they were saying, I could see the way their lips were moving and you would know they're speaking English, right? It's familiar. And of course it was shocking to all these onlookers, these Galileans, these fishermen speaking the language that I grew up with miles and miles and miles away from here. And as Luke continues in verse 7, he tells us just the scope, the scope of, of the distance that these people came from. Verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Persia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So Luke here, if we had a map, you'd get a sense of just how wide and how far-ranging this area was that he just described. If we had a map, it would stretch all the way from Italy, all the way around the eastern side of the Mediterranean, all the way over to where Algeria, Tunisia would be now. That's where Cyrene is. Some of these people, if they came by boat, that'd be a long distance. If they walked 
from Cyrene, that'd be about 1,100 miles, 30 days of constant walking, 14 hours a day. This wasn't saying (laughs) y'all. These were people from all over the known world. You remember that Jesus said that they will be witnesses. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You call this a jump start on a mission. Jesus, God brought the ends of the earth to them. And they proclaimed to people that then would take this mission, this gospel message back to where they were from. Verse 11 also gives us some insight, I think, into what it means for us to be witnesses. Says that, that each of them who heard, heard them speaking of the mighty deeds of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a mission. The mission is to be a witness. To be a witness, to tell the world that is hurting and that is broken that there is a Savior, that there is a God who loves them. We have a mission to accomplish. But I think sometimes, if you're like me, you can get a little nervous. If I'd say, hey, this week, everyone needs to share the gospel one time, I think some butterflies would start to turn for a number of people. I think sometimes we make it so complicated. Now, I don't ever want to downplay the significance of having a way that you share the gospel. If you aren't comfortable sharing the gospel, talk to a pastor, talk to someone to learn a good way to share the gospel that you're comfortable with. But I don't want to lose sight of what happened here. Because these people just spoke the mighty works of God. They testified to what God had done. Now in your own life, have you considered the mighty works of God? Have you taken time to think about all he has done for you? All the ways he has poured out blessing in your life, the way he saved you, the way he he restored relationships, the way he's guided you, protected you, cared for you. Have you gone through and have you thought about all the mighty works of God that are personal to you? So that, so that when the Spirit prompts and when the opportunity comes, you're ready. You're ready to bear witness to them. To say, here is what God has done for me. Sometimes we make it so complicated, but often witnessing comes down to just telling people what we know to be true because it is true for us. If you look at the Psalms, so often this is what Psalms do. The Psalms of Israel often would be these great kind of records of all that God has done, and they were intended to to encourage and fortify the faith of the people to say, if God did that then, He is the same today. He will do it now. Perhaps a a practical thing that you could do this week is sometime when you're having a quiet time, just go in and just list out all the things that you could be thankful for because of God's work in your life. Why stop it a year? Go throughout your whole life. God, I am so thankful for this. You did this. I'll never forget this. And I want to praise you for that. And going through that then primes us to be ready to bear witness when the moment comes, when the Spirit makes it clear 
this person needs to hear of the mighty deeds of God. As we close this scene and prepare for next week, I think a a sobering reminder comes that even when we proclaim, outcomes aren't always guaranteed. Verse 12, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. They asked, what does this mean? They saw this miraculous manifestation of God's Spirit coming, and they said, what does this mean? I wish, I wish whenever something incredibly miraculous occurs, or I wish that when we as as the church are out and we are loving our neighbors and we are trying to bless our city and we are trying to bring about good and, and represent the love of God in our city. I wish that people seeing those things would immediately intuitively say, oh, well, they're doing this because they are Christians. They are motivated by the love of Jesus and they want to let me know about the love of Jesus through their actions. I wish that's the way it happened. Wouldn't that be great? But so often our actions do testify to God, but, but the message doesn't always clearly come through. And you think about Jesus, even in his ministry, all the miracles he performed. People were astounded, coming from all over to see it, and yet so many of them then left. Ah, eh, he only fed 5,000, you know. Maybe you're the kind of person that has thought before, if I... If I just could have a sign, or maybe you know people that say, if I could just have a sign, if God would just give me a sign, an indication, but so often miracles and signs, so often they're, they're hard to be kind of interpreted, and, and, and really they can end up in someone even mocking them, and someone saying, that doesn't make any sense to me. And I think the good reminder for us is that miracles point to God. Good works point to God. Loving acts point to God, but there is a time and there is a need for explanation. There is a time and there is a need for interpretation, for someone to come along and say, here is what this means. And this crowd, this crowd is ripe for that moment. And Peter is about to stand up and we are going to read about what he does and what he says next week. That's my best Brian Clark. (laughs) Before we finish, I want to reflect on on these truths and this story for a moment. We started by asking, how is it, how is it that 120 believers has grown like it has? What has empowered that? And the clear answer is the Spirit of God has empowered and enabled that movement, that growth. What has happened in our church? It is powered by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God moving is what allows the church to grow, allows people to come to faith. Nothing happens without the Spirit. Throughout Acts, as we walk through this book, we are going to be reminded over and over again that we are called to be on mission. There is a world that is hurting. 
There are people that need to know the truth. They need to know the truth because they are living in darkness. They are living confused. And for some of us, that's going to mean maybe we get on a plane, we become missionaries. But for most of us, that's probably going to mean that it's the person in the office next door. Or it's the person that lives next to us. And the incredible reality of Pentecost is that as we've been given a mission, we've also been filled with the very Spirit which empowers the growth of the church, empowers us to be on that mission. We have not been left alone. The Spirit that filled the kings and the Spirit that filled the prophets now fills you and fills me. Do we believe that? It should be something that prompts us to praise, prompts us to thanksgiving, but also prompts us to speak, prompts us to act. And as we act, we can never lose sight of the fact that the Spirit is where our confidence lies. Our confidence lies in God. As we are walking through Acts, one thing we can never lose sight of is there is no character that is more important than God. God is the main character. God moving through His Spirit. Nothing happens without His Spirit moving. And just like those disciples, we want to be people that wait upon the Spirit, that are Spirit-dependent people, placing our confidence in God, not in ourselves. Because with, without Him, we can do nothing. But we want to be a people that bring about flourishing in our community. We want to be a people that, that that's bring restoration to our city in this moment where there is so much division not just division, but, but division that's almost kind of worked its way into tribalism. You know, I hang out with these people, not these people. Cross political lines, racial lines, scientific or epidemiological lines, whatever it is now. And we need the Spirit to come and unify us, empower us to be a unified people representing God in this place. We are a spirit-filled, spirit-dependent people. In church, we are the people that have been filled with the Spirit of God so that we can dare to be the church. We've been given the power to be the church. Let us never stop praising and thanking our God for that. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have poured your spirit out in abundance upon your people. Like a flood, you have poured your spirit out. It has filled those of us that are your followers. And we thank you and praise you for that. Help us, Lord. Help us be reliant upon the spirit. Help us to to hear you speaking through your spirit. We thank you that you, by your spirit, empower us to act, that you unify us, and we praise you. We praise you and thank you for that magnificent act of grace that started so long ago and is bearing fruit even to this day. Amen.